The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 38 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not to my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before I get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again... To check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. So, lots of other great guests this month that we had. I mean, it was the second highest number of listeners in one month so far, as our listenership just continues to steadily grow. And so I want to thank... All of you for listening to Task Force 7 Radio and sharing TF7 Radio with your friends. And thank all of you in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, India, and even China for tuning in. Yeah, this is a global show. We have a global audience, and I really appreciate each and every one of you. Sincerely, thank you very much. So Tom Pager appeared on last week's show, and I must say Tom is one of the smartest people I know. He has a very diversified background in cybersecurity and risk. He's got a premier education in Harvard. He's a top executive with the most powerful companies in the world. And now some of the most successful startups in the world. And he's got great dynamic communication skills. He's a great speaker. He's just really great to have on the show and to have as a guest host as well. So last week we were talking about the role of risk in the cybersecurity realm. And the risk executives just loved it. I mean, got a lot of great feedback from risk professionals who feel very strongly that risk identification, risk prioritization, and the risk mitigation efforts in an organization need to be more integrated into the CISO role in order for the InfoSec program to be truly effective. So, you know, more and more we are talking about risk management, agility, flexibility, speed, transparency. We talk about things like alignment and enablement as the key factors in a successful cybersecurity strategy. And we'll continue to dig into that a little bit deeper in the next few episodes. So, like I said, Tom is one of the most diverse and dynamic cybersecurity professionals in the world. If you missed last week's show, don't forget to check it out. Tom Pagler, former Secret Service agent and former executive with Visa, JPMorgan Chase, DocuSign, and Newstar, and now the new Chief Security Officer of BitGo on last week's episode. Episode number 37 of Task Force 7 Radio. So how do you listen to last week's episode, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. You can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fix. We're everywhere. You can't miss us, folks. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Just check us out. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. So tonight we're going to have Richard Kessler on. He's a director with KPMG, one of the big four powerhouses. And he's going to be on the show with us tonight to talk about change management, unified data and governance, and the agile enterprise. You're going to want to stick around for this because Richard's going to break this unified vision of cybersecurity down for us. And although many cybersecurity professionals don't find data security and governance the most exciting part of the job, Richard's going to explain why it is essential to the success of your program and can even do wonders for your career if you do it right. So... 
Richard's a director in the cybersecurity practices at KPMG, and he specializes in information uh, governance and data governance and operational risk control. He's part of the strategy and governance pillar there with a focus on enterprise data and information governance and privacy. So as a key facilitator for digital transformation, which we talk a lot about on this show, he has led global programs to simplify and improve complex data-related policies, business, and technical requirements, including operational risk management and control processes, investigative functions, compliance monitoring, and change management. So he has managed electronic communications, archiving operational environments, and has designed, implemented, and managed corresponding global data quality management functions. He advises firms on ways to design and implement programs that address IG, records, and information management, electronic discovery, privacy, GDPR compliance, operational risk management, litigation readiness and the response, and of course, what we spoke about, data governance, technology risk, and enterprise change management. He has extensive experience working with organizations within the financial services, pharmaceutical, healthcare, biotech, legal services, insurance, retail, aerospace industries, as well as assisting law firms and attorneys with litigation, regulatory, and general investigative readiness and response. So a ton of great experience here to tap into. Stay tuned, everyone. Richard Kessler, director with KPMG's Cybersecurity Advisory Services, coming up on the second and third segments of the show. But first, some cybersecurity news and analysis. So you guys are going to love this, right? You're going to love this. Two hackers were recently arrested by Russian law enforcement authorities for hacking PayPal and a bunch of other accounts. And Russians put out news releases everywhere, like their guys are the next Team Six of cybersecurity investigations. I give me a break, right? This is really funny. I want to meet these two morons first of all, who are apparently the only two Russians in the history of Russia to get arrested by their own government for hacking. I mean, I got to meet these two guys. I mean, they set the president, and the bar is really, really low, right? We must be dealing with two geniuses here. According to a post in databreaches.net, Russian police have arrested two teenage hackers for breaching, hijacking, and selling access to over 700,000 online accounts at Russian-based online stores, payment systems, and bookmaking betting portals. So Russian cybersecurity firm Group IB aided authorities with the investigation. The Group IB spokesperson said that the company first became aware of the two hackers in November of 2015 when they carried out a large-scale dictionary attack and compromised over 120,000 accounts at a large Russian online store. So I'm thinking like Group IB is pushing the publicity on this one because it's almost embarrassing for Russian law enforcement to put out a news release about these two arrests when we all know that some of the largest and most prolific cyber-organized crime groups in the world operate out of Russia with the widespread impunity to attack American and European institutions at scale and at will. Like we all know, this is common knowledge. I mean, the Russian government does not even respond to requests for assistance from foreign law enforcement agencies to investigate cyber crimes and frequently actually protests when Russian nationals are arrested abroad for hacking American institutions. This is a total joke, right? So these people are not our friends, right? So, by the way, this Moscow-based cybersecurity company, Group IB, they estimated the size of the the cybercrime market in Russia alone to be $2.3 billion, which I think is a drastically underestimated... uh, uh, The estimate is drastically underestimated, but... This was back in 2014. Even 2014, $2.3 billion is a low number. And that was back then. It's much higher than that. Much, much higher than that. So look, I found this story amusing because no Russians ever get arrested by Russian authorities for hacking ever, right? And, and, and this, there's a reason for that. Because there are basically two rules for Russian hackers, right? Before I close this out. Number one, don't target Russians as the victim of your crimes, Right? You can, you can hack and run, you do whatever, but you don't victimize Russians. That's rule number one, which these two miscreants obviously did. And I'm not going to read their names because who really cares? Who cares? Who cares who they are? Who cares? Number two, you got to pay the man for protection. If you think these teenage hackers are the muscle over there in Russia, you don't understand what's going on over there, man. I, we'll get into this in another episode. This is interesting stuff, and I know a lot of people want to hear about this, but. The bottom line is rule number two, you got to pay to play, man. You just don't keep get to keep all your winnings. That's not how it works. So I think this story does more to attract attention 
to the fact that Russia is a conspirator to attack American and European financial institutions every day, and they are stealing billions of dollars from free citizens all over the world, and then using these stolen proceeds to fund anti-American and anti-West activities around the globe. So more to come on that. So the HackerNews.com reporting that another Facebook quiz app left 120 million users' data exposed, and in a separate release in the same week, they reported that Facebook shared user data with 61 tech companies. And I'll tell you why this is interesting in a, in a minute. So, so people are still getting over the, the most controversial data scandal of the year in some respects, and the Cambridge Analytical uh, scandal. And it seems Facebook is under fire yet again after it emerges that a popular quiz app on the social media platform exposed the private data of up to 120 million users for years, <laughs> for years, not just like in a day, something happened like for years it was doing this. So I think people are just numb to this stuff. I don't think anyone really cares. I don't think anyone does. I mean, that's the problem. You know, people just read this and they move on with their day. And it's oh, just another 120 million people, you know, another 100 million over here, another, you know, 90 million over here. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. And we, we all know that Facebook was in these controversies uh, earlier this year over, the, over a quiz app that sold data of 87 million users to a, a political consultancy firm. And then it says here in this news article, by the way, it says, who reportedly helped Don- Donald Trump win the U.S. presidency in 2016. I-, I hate when they do this, like a reportedly reported from who, who reported that. I've seen it in a bunch of different places, but I know it's also been reported that the Trump campaign didn't use that data in the campaign. So I don't know. Fake news, maybe fake news alert. I don't know. <laughs> the Trump campaign, you know, did report that they didn't use the data from Cambridge Analytica. So. And then, by the way, it's, it says, you know, to win the election. Like, that was the determining factor. I mean, it's just so misleading sometimes. <clears throat> then there was another article on Facebook. It was a different third-party quiz app called uh, Name Test. It found exposing data of up to 120 million Facebook users to anyone who happened to find it. This was revealed, of course, by an ethical hacker. There are some good people out there doing some good things. So uh, during the Cambridge Analytical scandal revealed in March this year, Facebook stated that it had already cut off third-party access to users' data and their friends in May 2015. Now, this is interesting because they just submitted a 747-page long document delivered to Congress on Friday that said, when, well, it, it articulated, Facebook admitted that it continued sharing data with 61 hardware and software makers as well as app developers after two, 2015 as well. So new news there. It's new, but in the same respect, it's just old news. (laughs) The hits just keep on coming for Facebook with no end in sight. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications. Please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the director of KPMG's cybersecurity advisory practice at the great state of New York, Mr. Richard Kessler. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. 
SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm with our special guest, a director in KPMG's cybersecurity advisory practice, Mr. Richard Kessler. Richard, welcome to the show. George, thanks so much for having me. Hey, so Richard, you do a lot of interesting stuff over at KPMG. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what kind of work you do, and what kind of impact you're trying to make in the security world. So George, I am very, very excited about being able to work in a lot of different disciplines, including data governance, security, privacy, and a bunch of related areas. And I've had the opportunity to get to this point by looking at what I do over the years as something that changes all the time and uh, a way of constantly learning. So I like to do a lot of different things. So can you explain to our listeners a little bit about unified data and information governance and and why it should be important to them as cybersecurity or data security professionals? So uh, unified data and information governance looks at data from a number of different angles. Uh, Traditionally, a lot of these uh, different disciplines, security, privacy, records and information management, discovery, looking at uh, data governance like master data management, data lineage, lineage, all those things used to be worked on as separate disciplines with specific subject matter experts in each of those areas. Uh, But today's world has really started to push us in the direction of how do we look at those things holistically? How do we look at them in relationship with one another? And how do we manage them all well to achieve something for for example, our clients, our customers, the organizations that we work in and that we serve. So when people talk about change management, isn't really change management just fixing the SSDLC process and maybe a few other processes? I mean, what is it really? Well, when I look at it, uh, the SDLC, or a systems development lifecycle for applications, is just one aspect of how you might develop a capability or a platform that's going to be used for, for data. And that is something often that's just uh, in-house. Uh, when you look at where data is today, data is really everywhere, including at uh, vendors, cloud providers. Um, and if there's a lawsuit or a litigation, for example, that data could be at the law firm and another party that that law firm employs to store and manage that data. The data really can be everywhere. So if you're looking at optimizing change management, 
for your applications through the SDLC. It's one of many enterprise processes that really needs to be optimized so that all those things I mentioned earlier, security, privacy, uh, life cycle, those can be done by design in those enterprise processes. So SDLC is just one of many. So when all, the, when all these security of my design processes address all of these major risks that we're talking about? Well, interestingly, if you look at them in isolation, uh, it's possible to say, hey, I've addressed this list of security risks or that list of privacy risks, or I've gotten all of my master data or golden sources lined up and those risks have been addressed specifically. But when you start to look at risks that require you to do a good job in all of those areas, uh, for example, when we look at a privacy case where you need to not only know what personal data you have and what's, for example, uh, tied to your client master, uh, but you also need to look at, okay, now, what is that data being used for? And do those uses match up with the consent that's been provided? And we see that often in the news where a particular provider is reselling the data for use that hasn't necessarily been authorized. Uh, but then that data has some uh, lifetime. And so you'd want to make sure when that data is no longer required for a business purpose, a legal purpose, or regulatory purpose, that you've gotten rid of it. So, so far, we're, we've looked at the data governance uh, aspects and the client experience when that becomes client data. We start to look at, does its use match up with the consent uh, that's been provided by the user? And where does that data exist in the life cycle? That could be on-prem, that could be at third uh, parties. And then if there's a data breach, you need to be able to know if where that data is and uh, where it could have been basically compromised. And finally, if you're managing the life cycle uh, to the end, if you've gotten rid of it when it is no longer required, then you've reduced the threat landscape. It's no longer available to be breached. So that couples all of these different disciplines together. Privacy, security, life cycle, and data governance. If you look at that particular example, uh, which might be labeled as privacy, you're really doing a good job individually. Yes, you're reducing the risk of not knowing what your client data is by, let's say, tagging it with that client ID right at the beginning when that data is created or received. But that risk that you're really trying to resolve is crossing all of these different disciplines. So, using unified data and information governance to holistically understand the entire life cycle of data as it crosses all of these different disciplines allows you to achieve what your client needs. What your client wants is for you to protect their data from the moment it's created to understand how it's being used for you to only use that data in the way it's been uh, uh, authorized to be used and to get rid of it when it no longer is required. This way you don't have to worry about it. So this privacy use case challenges the traditional siloed thinking that organizations have used in the past. You mean like cell phone providers selling GPS information of their customers to third parties without the customer's consent, things like that? <laughs> exactly that. Or things like facial recognition data or, you know, every other week in the news, there's something, there's something else that everyone really should be paying attention to. And those are perfect cases for why this kind of unified view is required. So visibility around data and information related portfolios at today's organizations is a real challenge in my mind. I'm always talking about the importance of transparency on, on this show. And it's, and it's worse than the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. I mean, you've spoken to senior security professionals that sit on dozens of committees and change boards across a variety of different industries. How can one person or even a group of people have visibility into all the important things that are going on in a large matrix, sophisticated organization, let alone get any work done? 
Well, it goes back to what is governance really about? Is it about just the data? Is it about creating visibility or transparency into each of these areas individually? At the end of the day, it's about people. And it's really, in my view, about getting educated, not only about what else is going on around you, but getting to know those subject matter experts in your firm that are covering areas, let's say outside of security, that you might be uncomfortable with. And often, sometimes we see uh, folks and are like, oh, what I do is the most important. I am securing the data and I don't need to know about the life cycle or I don't need to know about what's going on with the data group or anything else. I just have to stick with my risks and get them resolved. So it's about getting to know those people and at least creating an alignment, ideally starting to create a collaboration that leads to better decision-making. And for the most mature organizations, they're really becoming integrated where decision-making is tied into a combined view across those disciplines. And it's kind of, George, like the sum is greater than the parts. When you get all those people working together, you as, let's say, a proxy or representative for them, don't have to know everything that they know. It's not about creating some kind of super brain or super, you know, intelligent one person who understands everything about everything. That's impossible. But getting to know those people and knowing enough to pull them in to specific risks, business opportunities, and most, and, and most importantly, for innovation, for work that is really going to drive what's going to make that organization money, creating that transparency enables that organization to move more quickly for those folks to already know each other and be talking and to know when to pull each other in and to have at least a common understanding and a common language for that alignment, collaboration, and hopefully at some point the integration of their thoughts and ideas and expertise into good decision-making. It sounds like a lot of relationship building here. I mean, are cybersecurity professionals good at relationship building? Sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, look, like with every discipline, when you get really strong in one space, and it takes a lot, uh, with all due respect, to security professionals, to CISOs, really to anyone who has become very... Uh, let's say, mature and senior in the role position, mature in their understanding of whatever it is they're working on, that takes a lot of time and investment. And often doing one um, becomes, a, you know, makes it a challenge for doing the other thing really well, for talking to people around you and getting to know the business. For example, staying on top of the different security providers, technologies, and capabilities, tools, and platforms is an incredible challenge today. It seems to change week over week, but it could be a, a much more important use of time for that security professional to talk to those different folks that they work with, not only the ones that are protecting information, but the ones that are driving innovation, the ones that are, for example, working on digital transformation or improving the client experience, or employing intelligent automation. We want security by design. Well, we also want privacy by design. We want lifecycle by design. So if a security professional makes the time to talk to the, those folks who are, let's say, domain experts in those areas, and also starts to talk to the folks that are working on, how are we gonna make this organization money and keep it in business? and do things that are going to give us sustainable profitability. Well, those relationships are going to be key for security by design and all those other things which I call X by design. So you're always doing the right thing with data from the beginning. It's security by design as part of a bigger picture. The security professional can do that by, over time, building those relationships understanding what's going on in the organization, understand who else is protecting data and what they're doing, what their roles are, and also understanding who's, who's driving the profit. It sounds like unified data and information governance is a bunch of different things combined together. 
right, to be successful. So can you explain how organizations that really do it effectively, how they use the outcomes? So uh, I would say, yes, it is a bunch of different things. Getting that to as short a list as possible while representing, let's say, what your organization does, what's already pre-existing in the world, for example, operational resilience, operational excellence, should be part of what you're looking at. Um, when they're doing it right, at the top of any particular idea, at the beginning of any particular idea, when everyone's first discussing it, you should know what the short checklist is that you need to worry about. For example, if you are working on something that's driving improvements in the client experience, you should know basically what you need, need to do to protect their data appropriately. You don't want to introduce capabilities that are going to delight your customer, for example, and then also expose their data so that could easily be breached. It makes, uh, I think, easy sense for everyone. The, the devils and the details, though, when you have these uh, innovation projects that are really trying to accelerate innovation, um, Greenfield, that's great. And I don't think we should touch that. We should allow those innovation teams to do their thing. But when that idea has become, wow, we've got something that's working, we want to look at it, now how do we get it in the real world? That's where I think the governance aspect of getting this short checklist for all those different things, uh, coming back again to not only privacy, security, but compliance, risk management, what is the short list we have to worry about before we take this great idea and put it out into the organization or sell it in the marketplace, when that becomes industrialized, that's the point to say, okay, what's the checklist? What do we really have to worry about? Before we develop this thing any further, what's that skinny checklist? We don't want to stop innovation, but we also don't, don't want to release something into the wild if it's not, if it's going to break security requirements, if it's going to basically create a perpetually growing data source on-prem and at third parties, and we're going to lose track of the data and not know how we can, like, uh, you know, dispose of it uh, defensively at all these uh, different locations where it's going to wind up. That's a great example of, okay, we'll let innovation happen. It's going to make the company money. It's going to improve things for the client. It's going to give us advanced analytics. But when it starts to be at that point where it gets released into some kind of pilot, for example, that is a great time to have that skinny checklist for, okay, here's all the things we need to worry about now. And let's just do it that way. I think that is a key way organizations can put in governance so that it is not an innovation inhibitor, it's an innovation enabler. And that's the most exciting thing about this. I think everyone, um, when you hear the word governance, you think, well, bureaucracy, red tape, things are going to slow down. When organizations are doing it right, when they're doing it best, it becomes an innovation accelerator because you already have that small checklist, yes, at the beginning of things to do right when you're ready to industrialize an innovative idea that is ready to become, let's say, a product. But you don't slow it down. You speed it up because you know the right thing to do from the beginning. And then as you get to, let's say, pre-production, that list naturally expands. And that is a great feature of this governance. How do we, yes, govern change. We're not going to release anything into production until it meets these base requirements but we're also going to have that list available at every stage in an appropriate level of detail so that that innovation can go faster. It goes from, I'm going to say no as a governance leader because this isn't ready to, let's find a way to yes and let's do it right from the beginning. So when we get to the end, we do have, for example, security by design embedded everywhere where we need it. So the magic question is, that I ask every cybersecurity professional when I'm trying to implement new processes and get buy-in from the board members and upper management is how exactly do you go about doing that? And that's, let's just say there's some CISO out there is getting excited about adopting unified governance into his organization or her organization. How 
can they sell the idea to upper management and the board that may be fatigued, really, quite frankly, by all the cybersecurity efforts that are going out there, and just see this as another cost? The board has started to understand data as being critical to the organization, aside from things that are, let's say, driving the innovation, the analytics, and uh, uh, digital transformation, thanks to the importance uh, that they recognize security plays today. So security has a seat at the table in most organizations. If they don't, well, then we have other things to worry about. But let's assume for a second that security now has the attention of the board. This is something that they're focused on. Uh, a CISO or a security professional can use that as an opportunity to leverage from that strength, the strength of the relationship, the communication, the attention the board has, and work with the C-suite, with the board, to start to expand their understanding that, yes, security by design, meeting security requirements, having the right security capabilities, et cetera, all that is incredibly important, but there's a bigger picture here. And starting to educate them that, hey, we have to worry about wherever the data resides for normal course. Okay, yes, we're going to put it in the cloud. But what about all the other places that the data is that could be key to our organization? Or where is the data that we don't know about? That's a, that's a real <laughs> issue. And then start to figure that out. And then are we managing the life cycle of that data appropriately? for example, which is, are we getting rid of it at all of these different places when it's no longer required? Are we dealing with privacy requirements appropriately wherever that data resides? Again, just not on-prem, but where that data winds up. Are we getting rid of that data, for example, that this uh, other provider, eh, yeah, they're being managed by this group over there. Are we creating disciplines that really make sure our minimum enterprise requirements are being covered everywhere? That is a growth and a maturity curve that can be created for the C-suite, that be, can be created for the board over time, where the CISO, as they become educated, for example, can then in turn educate the board that, hey, we need to do these things. And if we do security by design really well, if we do X by design really well, board, C-suite, you want to become faster, better at implementing these changes. We're going to create an agile enterprise by focusing on doing what we're supposed to do really, really well. So we can do what we want to do that much faster, better, and uh, more effective. So we're talking a lot about enablement and trying to avoid being an obstacle or a blocker, especially in digital transformation. We've talked about that on this show a lot. You talk about how value enablement facilitates value creation and innovation as well. How, how are these two ideas tied together? Well, it's really about thinking, hey, this isn't something that's optional and we have to do it and we have to do it well. So when you think about value enablement, what are all the things that you're doing in your organization that need to be done? Compliance, risk management, um, your security, your privacy, your life cycle, your ability to get the data out for investigations, which I like to refer to as investigative retrieval. These aren't really things that are optional. So to look at them and say, ah, oh, we have to do them. That's one way to look at it. Uh, but I look at it like, what are all the things that are gonna enable you to get the most value out of your data? How do you best manage uh, data as a strategic asset? Uh, saying that phrase often has always made me think, well, what do I really mean about that? Well, after data comes into uh, existence because of whatever process is tied to, uh, doing all the value enablement things well allows you to use it then for many, many other things. And George, as we have talked about before, the value creation activities are the things that are going to lead to, number one, new business, new markets, new clients, new products. You're going to get more value 
using that data to give you insights as to how you can make money. That is value creation. You've already got the data. It's already doing something for you. You're already making some kind of revenue and profit with it. But what else can you do with it that's going to create more value for your customer, that's going to create additional sales capabilities, that's going to lead you to be uh, you know, uh, more digitally transformed, if I could put it that way, which will, uh, again, in turn, give you more access to more uses of that data to not only meet your customer's expectations, but to delight the customer. And I have to say something very quickly about this value creation using uh, data as a strategic asset. Clients do have the expectation that every couple of months or maybe even on a week's time horizon, you as a provider are going to say, hey, here are these new additional capabilities that we can do and you don't have to pay anything else for them. We're just going to deliver them as part of your new, and this is a great example, I think your new mobile phone operating system has these 10 new capabilities and we're going to give them to you for free. So you stay on our platform forever. So if you're doing all the value enablement activities, for example, security by design really, really well, that's going to give the value creation side all that much more power to do things to delight the customer and to accelerate innovation and to find even more ways to say, hey, stay with us because we're giving you more for the same money that you're already paying. All right, Richard, we have to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Richard Kessler after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. 
I'm back with our special guest, the director of KPMG's cybersecurity advisory practice, Mr. Richard Kessler. So, Richard, sure. let's get back into the, uh, the like, let's talk about careers uh, to kick off this segment of, of the episode. Um, for our listeners out there, what can ha- having a unified governance vision do for their careers? I mean, what's in it for them? Well, when security professionals start to broaden out their understanding of what's going on in the organization and really tying themselves to the next series of innovation projects that are really going to do, you know, for the organization what it needs to stay in business, they start to tie themselves not to the, oh, we must do this to what can we do to make this a better organization, make more money, um, have a better client experience, et cetera, all these things that we're focused on all the time. They start to understand really why does the data exist in the first place and how does it move around to achieve that business objective. And it starts to help them build their understanding and the relationships and the, the connective tissue between what the C-suite is really concerned about and the data, and the data in a number of different um, capacities, right? So not only security, but the other things that need to occur with data to achieve those objectives. So I think getting to know the organization a lot better and what is really driving change and what is really driving improvements uh, is going to be a way for them to you know, start to broaden out their understanding and become a business partner than someone who is absolutely vital and to the organization, but is really about, okay, what do we have to be concerned about today that's going to potentially destroy our organization to more about, to more uh, uh, a partner in what can we do to make this a better organization overall? And how can we get to these goals that we actually want to pursue? So during our discussion here, I wrote down a couple notes, and I've, I've heard you say that security professionals have to have a certain mindset to understand and to actually implement a unified governance vision into their organization and to be successful in their careers, right? So now I've also heard you say that a security professional needs to think multidimensionally about security problems. So what do you mean by that specifically? Well... Uh, to your first point, there is, yes, we, for folks that are really deep in security, they're going to have a certain confidence and a certain, uh, let's say, sense of their own importance and self-worth. And that's, that's healthy. Actually, being able to go to the board and have those conversations, hard conversations, is absolutely required. But what's challenging sometimes is to have the humility to say, I just have a narrow picture of what's going on unless I start to talk to the other areas of technology, unless I talk to the folks that are working on data governance and that are working on data quality. Can I trust the data? Do I understand the meaning of the data? That they start to look at uh, things outside of, for example, security classification, perhaps the records classification, or the classification of data to a process taxonomy, or the way classification could work for data that's going to speed up innovation and improve advanced analytics, not the analytics in the security space, but also the analytics that are customer-facing or that the organization is using to improve its own insight. And then they really have to understand, and no one likes to talk about it, I just said it, records management. I, I like to... I like to rebrand records management these days as life cycle, right? I've never, you know, I don't think I've ever, I shouldn't say never, I don't think I've ever done it. Perhaps I have met a security person that is actually really also excited about and understands records management. In fact, uh, a lot of times, those are the folks that are like, ah, we'll just, wherever the data is, we'll just, but, you know, for example, <laughs> Thinking about data at rest and where it's wound up, for some of the CISOs that didn't worry about that, it ended their jobs. It ended their careers because they didn't think about, oh, that provider has that data 
and now it was breached. So, hey, you may want to, you may uh, not want to think about records management, but one day it may come back uh, to haunt you. I do think um, when they're thinking about these other dimensions, like the analytics aspects or uh, the life cycle, or when they start to think about privacy more and uh, really where that data winds up and the privacy impacts of having personal data around for a data subject, I think that is helping uh, a, a, a CISO or a security professional have better multi-dimensional thinking and thinking about data uh, in these other aspects, third party or the data supply chain, another way to think about data. Uh, but I do think as an, one last example of a dimension that uh, CISOs and security professionals should be thinking about is investigative retrieval. And uh, that includes for their own purposes for security investigation, but often for e-discovery for litigation or for regulatory investigation, you need to get that data out and get it out fast. So if it's encrypted and you've designed some fantastic encryption mechanism or uh, platform to get all of your data encrypted, well, the dimension they need to be thinking about is can we get that data out fast, MS, from an e-discovery perspective or for regulatory perspective within the time frame that we've been given? That may be a very different problem than getting the data back uh, for a security investigation and doing some you know, investigation or analytics just around a particular security incident. So that multidimensional thinking is really vital to start maturing the CISO's view. So let's talk about where this, you know, really impacts a cybersecurity strategy and some large organizations. Now, I was looking at the 2018 CEO Outlook survey that KPMG does, and once again, and no surprise to anybody, cybersecurity was rated by CEOs as the top risk facing their organizations by 33% of those polled. And like I said, no surprise. It's, it's, it's very well clear. In the, in the industry that cybersecurity is a top priority and is one of the biggest threats to any organization and is a threat to our national security as well. So with the, with the very threat landscape changing and growing at a rate that's getting faster and faster all the time, how does unified governance help CISOs and security professionals keep up with everything else that's going on in their organizations? How's that work? Well, it starts to take that concept of security by design and flip it around. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, security by design is making uh, sure security is Im embedded uh, everywhere. Uh, but what's the everywhere? And how do you simplify that? Well, if you have a governance structure which has representation from these various disciplines, these various areas of your, of your business that are both protecting data and that are also trying to leverage it as a strategic asset and using it to make money, well, you start to learn a bit about each of those areas in turn. And if you understand those different areas and you know how important cybersecurity is, you're gonna have everyone's attention already. Hey, I'm uh, representing the CISO in this conversation. Tell me about what you do. And I want to understand it better. Yes, to do security by design better. Uh, but I also want to understand how it is that I can help enable what you're trying to achieve. And that creates a partnership and a relationship. And it also creates that learning. And that learning is vital so that the CISO's uh, view is expanded. Does it mean you have to know? everything about that area? No. But I'd like to say, George, you have to know a little bit more than to be dangerous. Like, oh, I know enough to be dangerous, you know, I know enough to be dangerous in this area. Well, it means I kind of understand what it is, but I really don't understand how it affects my work and how uh, I, I need to do better. You need to know enough to know when to bring the right person into that conversation. So part of it is the, is the relationship. And having a, a unified governance group, meaning representation uh, from all these subject matter uh, areas, 
that can at least be aligned and or collaborated and integrated in the decision making, well, the CISO is, is actually uniquely positioned to start having those conversations and to learn enough and to learn more than just to be dangerous, to learn more how to do their jobs better and to learn more about how, um, you know, how to be an enabler for the organization. So I feel like we need to like say something to motivate people to get into this unified vision, right? And so I think um, cybersecurity professionals, they like to be out there battling nation states and disrupting organized crime groups, right? This is like some of the, you know, more exciting parts of cybersecurity. But like you said before, when you talk to them about records management after talking, you know, after they're doing that, they don't get too excited about some of this sometimes, but it's very, very important. So how can being aware of what's going on in risk management and legal and data quality and analytics and all these things elevate a security professional's career? Well, you know, being in the security field, which is incredibly well expected, uh, does seem to have, you know, some challenges to it uh, in the future. Uh, Artificial intelligence, uh, playing a role in uh, automating a lot of the things that, uh, let's say, the CISO used to, or currently is, but may not in the future, preside over groups of people that are doing it. A lot of this may just become tools and automation. So where do you go next? Well, staying close to, for example, all the other investigative functions at a firm. Uh, So, for example, let's take fraud and financial crime and uh, anti-money laundering and uh, regulatory investigations and e-discovery, internal investigations, HR investigations, really getting a broader view of what's going on investigation-wise already leverages from the strengths the CISOs likely to have, but gives them the broader view. So let's say they want to be the person at the organization that presides over all of these investigative functions. That could be a career path where they're starting to understand all that stuff. And when they're understanding better how risk management works overall, not only from an operational risk perspective, but from an enterprise risk management perspective with data and security playing key roles already that may take them to a chief uh, risk officer career path. Or if they start to tie themselves more closely to really what's making the organization money, which is the innovation and the analytics and all these additional uses for data that we haven't even dreamt up yet uh, or still are identifying, could give them the career path to, okay, what is the, can we trust the data? What is the meaning of the data? And how can we really get that discipline better so we can use it for more purposes, can take them down the chief data officer career path. And finally, looking at all of these things together and really understanding how data is being created and managed and used and how where it goes for out-of-course events and for all these things that can go wrong and how do you get rid of it at the end. And everything in between really gives them uh, the ability to understand the entire organization at large and what's going on from an operations perspective, which could give them a COO path. And if they have all that, and then they start to tie that to, okay, what are the new ways and new things that we can do to delight our customers? That could eventually put them in the path for CEO. That may sound like a stretch, but who knows, over 10, 20 years, you start marching down this path where by understanding the data better, you're understanding the organization better, you're understanding the markets that the organization is trying to address better, you're understanding the clients better, that really can take you in any direction you want to go. Because I used to think, George, okay, uh, this governance space and unified data and information governance is really about the things that have to do with data. Today, I think, what doesn't have to do with data? Where does, you know, what, it, what can be represented by data in some way? So right. the organization is the data, and by understanding that better, the CISO can lead themselves down the career path that they choose. So Richard, it sounds like you're making a case for the expert generalist in an age where that is 
we're really, really looking towards the degrees of specialization now, I think. I mean, people are sort of moving towards, you know, cybersecurity has these domains and you're looking towards degrees of specialis- uh, specialization in each one of these domains so that you can further your career. But in a way, I think you're talking about the expert generalist and get knowledge about all these different things and risk management and legal and data. And so where do SMEs fit into this paradigm that you're talking about? So I love this topic for so many reasons, but, uh, and, it, and, and at the same time, I feel challenged by it, and I'll explain what I mean. So first of all, we will always need folks that are experts in a particular thing, in security and privacy, in innovation and analytics and intelligent automation. We're going to need more artificial intelligent experts than ever, and I think that's a no-brainer uh, for all of us. So that will never end. And that can be a full-time job for folks, for sure, uh, forever. Just really getting great at one thing. But I think putting all these things together in a way that you have transparency and clarity and, and vision into how to direct investment governance, where are you putting your money as an organization? Yes, to protect the data appropriately, but to grow the organization at the same time, that is going to be a more and more vital skill set. How can we put all this stuff together, make a great decision at this stage of the game? You know, we've just got this idea off the ground. It's ready to be sold. But can we do this? And do we understand the intended consequences and the unintended consequences? You're going to need both. You'll need the SMEs, but you'll need the expert generalists, the ones that know enough uh, yeah, to be dangerous, to be better than dangerous in, in all these fields, right? And say, okay, C-suite, board, we can do this well, we can do it excellently, but we have to first fix these five things because otherwise, if we release this into the wild, it's going to break the company. So that expert generalist, yes, uh, it's going to be incredibly important in the future, uh, enabled by a governance structure, enabled by those relationships, the people, their collective knowledge, uh, represented by a proxy as that expert generalist. But you'll also need the subject matter experts to keep digging into the details. They'll always be vital. So we're talking about people in the cybersecurity space thinking multidimensionally. And I think we're asking cybersecurity professionals here to wear a bunch of different hats. How does one person gain the competence to to think about an issue from 13 different disciplines, 12 different disciplines? How does that happen? So, George, this is why I think governance isn't something that's optional. And maybe governance isn't the right word. We'll have to think about a new word in the future for it. But right now, let's just say the governance structure gives that uh, organization a mechanism to set up a structure. Uh, Just a few, let's say, bodies of folks that do represent these uh, varied disciplines. But isn't, let's say, 100 people, because that's unmanageable. But let's say it's just 10 or 15 or 20 people that are just a great representation of the organization, the different business units, the strategic folks, the innovation folks, but also the folks that are trying to protect uh, data in various different ways and risk management and compliance. So you're getting all those folks together and you're creating those conversations you're creating that vision, you know, and you do it over time. I would recommend that they start leveraging from the strength. So if you are basically in security and you're not already talking to your data uh, governance folks, your privacy uh, uh, experts, if you're not already talking to the attorneys and you're not already talking to the folks that are doing regulatory response, uh, start talking to them now and grow that understanding. So I think it's absolutely not only uh, possible, but it's vital that those conversations should be happening already because protecting the data uh, really means understanding a lot of those different uh, disciplines. So I think like, you know, having the, the, that multiple, uh, multiple dimension thinking, there's already imperative for that. And things like uh, the privacy uh, use cases, or for those organizations that are subject to 
uh, EU GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, that requires us to protect personal data uh, from data subjects uh, in the EU. Uh, I think that those are the kinds of things that are already creating that uh, imperative. And growing from what you're already required to do and creating that decision-making uh, structure, pulling those people together, that's a way to go down a path, a path of maturity, a path of better data uh, vision. And uh, that's how it can be achieved. So we got time for one more question. We're running uh, tight on time. But I want to ask you, how does an organization uh, growth in unified governance help it to become more agile? Speed is the key here. And we're always talking about speed in cybersecurity. And it, it, we have to be uh, agile and flexible uh, to be successful. How does this unified governance model help organizations become more agile? Well, if you have that group of folks that know what they're doing, that are the SMPs, and they're represented through their governance uh, representative, that proxy, and that short list, when you're taking something, an innovation idea, and you're ready to put it into your, you know, into your market, you're ready to sell it to your client. If you have that short checklist that you need to worry about, and it ties into those various subject matter experts that do know the issues, then you know, hey, I've got to act here. I've got a potential issue. I can't have a per per perpetually growing data source, for example. i got to figure out how to manage that appropriately. But I've already known that, and I've already taken the time to create the checklist and the relationship and to know that this is going to be a problem. And therefore, when those conversations are occurring, they're occurring really upfront, and that agility comes from hey, I understand the short list of things we have to do right, and we're going to do them right every, everywhere and every time, and I'm going to put that into the organization so we can find a way to yes and find that way to yes. Yes, we can do this for our clients. We can do it for them. We can protect their data at the same time. This is how, and if we do have an exception, we know exactly where to go and who to talk to to fix it. That creates the agility. That creates the speed but gives you quality to make sure you're doing it the right way. Richard, it was great having you on the show, man. I hope to have you back often. George, thanks so much for the opportunity. It was awesome to be part of this. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. We've run out of time, folks. But before we go, I'll remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other updates, cybersecurity, breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.